city heart be flooded with stuttering sounds. Gutter music for silver lining clouds tumbling down. Town we breathe in memory. Welcome to Working Class Heroes Radio. My name's Khadija Meder. I'll be one of your hosts tonight. I'm Danny Katz, your other host. Tonight, Julian will be speaking with activists in Brooklyn who are organizing against National Grid's plan to build a fracked gas pipeline under residential neighborhoods in northern Brooklyn. We're also going to want to hear what you think about it, so we'll be taking calls towards the tail end of the show. But before that, Khadija and I are going to be doing an extended headline section with reports from protests in Queens and New Jersey. But first, we at Working Class Heroes want to recognize that we in New York City live on land that was stolen from and still rightfully belongs to the Lenape people. We stand in solidarity with the Lenape and all indigenous peoples in their struggles for liberation. Thanks. Okay, now here's some headlines. This past month, what may have been the single largest protest in human history took place in India. Tens of thousands of farmers marched to the capital to protest proposed new legislation, while more than 250 million people, including 450 farmers and workers' unions around India, participated in a 24-hour general strike in solidarity. They were protesting new legislation by Prime Minister Narendra Modi that would supposedly remove taxes and other government-imposed financial burdens on farmers to help them sell directly to corporations and private investment in agriculture. However, this legislation takes away what little guaranteed government support they already had. This legislation will do away with protection of small farmers from being able to be taken advantage of by large agricultural corporations and laws that kept prices fair. The power of this movement, centered in Punjab and Haryana, which are primarily agricultural, actually forced the government to meet the protesters instead of cracking down and brutalizing them, as had been the norm for the Indian government in the past. All of this was unexpected in the midst of the pandemic. The farmers say they are resolute in continuing for their long haul. They have already been successful in shutting down some of the country's transport, shops, and markets, and farmers are blocking all roads into the capital of Delhi. 40% of India's workforce is agricultural and plagued by poverty and underdevelopment. India also has one of the highest rates of farmer suicides in the world. Given the size of the agricultural workforce and how the movement has unfolded thus far, its power and potential is truly incredible in the second largest country in the world. Back here in New York, 20 people rallied in the snow outside the Queens Criminal Courthouse on Wednesday afternoon in support of Prakash Churaman, a 21-year-old Guyanese immigrant who has been locked up in Rikers Island since the age of 15. Churaman, whose case we have covered on Working Class Heroes, was convicted in the murder of his best friend, Saquon Clark, despite a lack of physical evidence tying him to the scene. The case against Prakash relied heavily on a confession that Churaman says was coerced out of him by police officers. Last year, Churaman's conviction was overturned on the grounds that Judge Kenneth Holder hadn't allowed expert testimony on the unreliability of confessions extracted from juvenile suspects like Prakash. But he remains locked up in Rikers. At the rally, speakers praised Prakash's courage for refusing to accept a new plea offer that could allow him to leave prison soon in exchange for dropping his claim of innocence. And they demanded that Judge Holder be recused from the next trial and that Queens District Attorney Melinda Katz offer Prakash pretrial release or a bail that was it that is within his family's means. Here are some clips from the Wednesday rally. Here to talk to the spirit of Prakash who we are proud of because, you know, a lot of times young gentlemen in his position, they take those plea deals because they don't see any other way. 
Now under a racist, oppressive judicial system, which was commandeered by former DA Richard Brown. Talk about it. We all know that the NYPD and the prosecutors use coercive tactics. Talk about it. To generate false confessions. And that is a system that perpetuates the mass incarceration of too many black and brown youths here in one of the largest counties in America. Talk about it. So when a young man decides to fight for his rights against an oppressive system that my organization both in New York as well as the family of Prakash as well as all his friends and other four other all social justice organizations are going to come out and fight with him. Yes! Say no more! No more! Detective Barry Brown who forced Prakash at the age of 15 into admitting to a crime he did not commit, has a clear history of abusing power, and he needs to be held accountable for his crimes. <laughs> Detective Barry Brown is notable for coercing Chanel Lewis, a young black man, is revolvingly confessing to the murder of Katrina Betrano and Howard Beach. Just like Prakash, Chanel was also dealing with mental health and physical disabilities. Detective Barry Brown must be held accountable, and while we're talking about accountability, it is of great disgust that District Attorney Miller the cats have the audacity to attempt to make Prakash settle for an assault charge with him for three to ten years. We demand nothing more than a full acquittal. We're here for Prakash, but it's also we gotta fight against the system. Yes. We gotta defund the police. Yes. We gotta defund the system. We gotta incarcerate and criminalize our youth. Period. Right? Prakash should be home today with his mom. We're in a pandemic, and here he is in a cage with thousands of others in a cage. Right now at Rikers, where he's at, has one of the highest rates in any jail in New York City and in the country. Our folks shouldn't have to be dealing with this. They should not be in cages, especially in a pandemic or ever. Those were the voices of John McFarlane of Vocal New York, Farood Emiel of the Southside Action Project, and Will Depo of Daisy's Rising Up and Moving. Prakash's next hearing is scheduled for February 10th. Meanwhile, in New Jersey, immigrants and activists are ramping up pressure against ICE detention centers in Hudson and Bergen counties. Last month, local officials in Hudson County, known as freeholders, voted to extend the county's contract with ICE for up to 10 more years, even after hearing over nine hours of public testimony resoundingly against ICE's continued presence. The night of the vote, U.S. Senators Cory Booker and Robert Menendez criticized the freeholders' decision and urged them to end the contract, which Booker stated over Twitter is blood money. This past Thursday, New Jersey residents again joined the virtual freeholders' meeting to express their outrage over the decision to extend the contract. Since the vote, immigrant activists have been holding protests outside the home of Tom DeGeese, one of five freeholders who voted for extending the contract. Freeholder DeGeese and his colleagues, who were all Democrats, filed a restraining order against the protesters, which they say is a violation of their First Amendment right to assemble. And in Bergen County Jail, which houses immigrant detainees for ICE, over a dozen immigrants detained have participated in an ongoing hunger strike to protest lack of COVID protections and inhumane conditions, including rat infestations, freezing temperatures, and physical and sexual abuse. In a letter written by hunger strikers on December 4th, they've reported that many of them were being intimidated, tortured, denied water, and ultimately tricked into receiving food after being told they would be released if they ended their strike. Four detainees have continued to refuse food and have been put in solitary confinement. 
Over 60 organizations from New York and New Jersey have signed on to a letter asking for New Jersey officials to release immigrants from the Bergen County facility. And protests have been held outside the jail every day this week and will continue through next week. In New York City, people are also rallying in support of releasing immigrant detainees. Yesterday afternoon, residents in Sunset Park held a press conference in March, where some residents formerly held in Bergen County Jail shared what their experiences were like inside. And in Manhattan, a rally in March with over 100 people was held in Times Square that ended with arrests and severe injuries after a car plowed through the crowd, injuring six people. For more on this ongoing story, we're going to bring in Lupita Romero and Mel Gonzalez, who have spent today outside Bergen County Jail, which is contracted by ICE to house people. Lupita, Mel, can you tell us what's going on? Yeah, thank you for calling us in. Uh, we have been out here outside of Bergen County uh, pretty much since noon. We were able to visit with uh, two folks who uh, over the last two days have been held here um, and when we were able to talk to them, they told us a little bit about what's going on with the hunger strike. As you mentioned in the headlines, uh, the hunger strike started with about 12 people who started the hunger strike because they were transferred to Bergen County from other detention centers in the area, including Essex County and Elizabeth, and were transferred to Bergen County in the midst of the COVID pandemic and essentially started the hunger strike be to protest their transfer, as well as the conditions in Bergen County, which is one of the worst uh, detention centers in the area when it comes to conditions. They're protesting things like lack of heat, uh, rat infestations, uh, and other things. Throughout the hunger strike, ICE has been coming to the facility to try to dissuade hunger strikers and they actually presented falsified documents to the strikers where they stated that they would be considered for release if they ended their strike. And so uh, some of the strikers uh, were also told that if they didn't stop, they would be forced fed or transferred out of New Jersey to other states far away from their families. When specifically an ICE officer, Lillian Rosario, visited the ICE jail at Bergen County about two weeks ago and told them that if they ended their hunger strike, they would be considered for release. They were told to pack their belongings. And because of this, many believed that they were in fact going to be released. But since then, they were actually only moved to a different cell of the jail. And so uh, some of the strikers did break their strike because of this lying. Uh, but since they have continued to be held in solitary confinement, some of the conditions have actually been resolved. They are now receiving heat. They have access to bathrooms. But detainees believe that this is a PR stunt now that this, these protests have gathered more attention. And they're using the fixing of some of these conditions to also tell the press that because the conditions have been resolved, the hunger strikers have ended their strike. In fact, right now, there are two folks who are still continuing to refuse food, while some of the other folks who have continued in their strike have been transferred in the last couple of days to other facilities. ICE has not given any information to advocates as to where detainees are being sent, and uh, many of them believe that these transfers are actually illegal, but not only that, they are dangerous because of the the rise in COVID cases and the lack of social distancing and PPE that is being worn 
by officers. Um, and one of the things that should be noted is that over the last weekend, Cardinal Tobin, which, who is the Archbishop of the church here in New Jersey, as well as other religious leaders, have come out in support for the release of all immigrants in the detention center. And so that's a little bit of a report from our visit with uh, Carlos Colindre and also Jose Salguero, who are the two hunger strikers that we were able to talk to. Um, but Mel is going to come in to talk a little bit about the rally that happened today and what's been going on. Cool. Thanks, Peter. Yeah. So, you know, after some violent arrests yesterday um, here, things have really escalated. Um, you know, by around 2.30, there were already 100 protesters um, and maybe 60 cops in full riot gear. The protesters were only allowed to protest across from the from the jail this time. And cops have been aggressive. They've maced and tear gassed protesters. At least six have been arrested thus far, though things are really only escalating right now. Cops have been called in from neighboring towns and many streets around the jail have been blocked off. Protesters started marching when cops surrounded the area and there was a big scare of, of kettling and mass arrests. And by six, there was at least 200 protesters that we've seen and cops have started escalating even further with, with more violence. Uh, but protesters don't really seem to be stopping at this point. Um, listeners can follow on RG and other orgs like Cosecha to keep updated uh, throughout the rest of the night because it really doesn't seem like it, it's stopping right now. Thank you so much for this report, guys. Just one brief follow-up question. For people, for listeners who want to um, get involved either physically or in other ways to support, is there any information y'all can provide about how people can try to lend support to these protests? Absolutely. I believe that uh, protests are going to be ongoing here outside of Bergen County. But as we saw yesterday, there's also protests that are now being organized in New York. And people should know, to put it in perspective, over 80% of people who are held in New Jersey detention centers are actually from New York City. Um, and if anything, one of the things that uh, the detainees, the immigrant folks we spoke with, Jose and Carlos, both report that they have not been able to see their family um, because of how far away they are from the jail. And so, you know, I think that um, we mentioned that to say that uh, this is definitely an issue that New Yorkers should be aware of. Um, and as the time goes on, uh, you know, because of the extension of the contract in Hudson County, um, the, the coalition to abolish ICE, New York and New Jersey is only growing. There's over 100 people, who, 100 different organizations that have signed on to the letter demanding the release of all immigrants. Um, and this is not just in Bergen County. They are demanding the release of all immigrants um, across detention centers in New York and New Jersey, specifically asking uh, New York Governor Cuomo and Governor Murphy to use their executive power to release folks because they can actually do that. And so I think that for sure, some of the organizations people can follow is Ridgewood for Black Liberation, Cosecha, uh, First Friends of New Jersey, uh, freedom for all immigrants. And we're going to be updating our IG with uh, more uh, information. But I definitely think that seeing uh, rallies pop up in New York is a great way to build consciousness around the fact that most people held here are from New York. Um, and really, this is an issue across the tri-state area. All right. Thank you so much, Lupita and Mel, for that report. We're going to continue covering this issue uh, next week as well. 
And that's it for headlines. We're going to take a short musical break, but when we come back, Julian will be talking to activists from the Frack Out of Brooklyn Coalition and the No North Brooklyn Pipeline campaign. Stay tuned. Yo no soy de aquí. Yo no soy de allá. Yo soy de la tierra. Ella es su mamá. Y no soy de aquí. That was Tepe Yolotli's song, Que No Soy De Aquí. You're listening to Working Class Heroes Radio on WBAI 99.5 FM and also streaming on WBAI.org. My name is Julian Guerrero, and I'll have the pleasure of speaking with our guests tonight. We have three guests, and it can sometimes be confusing who's talking, so I'd like to introduce each one of you at sort of one at a time, and if you could sort of respond so our listeners can associate your voice to who you are. So first, I want to introduce Monique Roberts, a tenant organizer at Housing Organizers for People Empowerment, also referred to as HOPE. Hi, everyone. How's it going? Um, my name is Monique. I use she, her pronouns. And I'm grateful to be on. I can talk more about my work, I guess, a little bit later. Definitely. Thanks, Monique. Our next guest is Patti Ancali. She's a member of Mi Casa Resiste and the Frack Out of Brooklyn Coalition, which is a Black, Indigenous, and people of color-led coalition fighting the pipeline. Hey, thank you for having me, Patti. She, her pronouns. Uh, Looking forward to this conversation. Good to have you. And finally, Fabian Rogers is our third guest for the night. He's an organizer with Brownsville Resident Green Committee. Hey all, uh, Fabian here. I'm also a member of uh, Housing Organized for People Empowerment with Monique, so much of a pleasure to be uh, uh, on the show. So glad to have you. Really excited to have this conversation. Um, Monique and Fabian are part of the No North Brooklyn Pipeline campaign, which Frack Out of Brooklyn uh, collaborates with in this fight. So let's let's get into this. Um, can you? Each of you tell us a bit about yourselves, uh, your organization, and how you came to find yourself in this struggle. Sure. Maybe we can just go in the same order. (laughs) Um, Again, my name is Monique. I'm a tenant organizer with HOPE, which is Housing Organizers for People Empowerment. We do tenant organizing in East Brooklyn. Um, So on this, focusing on Brownsville, but we also do work in like East New York, East Flatbush, um, and East Crown Heights. Um, amazing amazing tenant leaders Fabian and I actually just came from like a banner drop right before this at a building on Eastern Parkway um just shouting out like Najee and stopping evictions in New York and this pandemic um so grateful for that I've been with Hope for about a year and Hope is about a year old though it's been in the works for maybe like 
two years before that. So grateful to see it growing and where it's going to go. Um, and we collaborate with the Brownsville Residence Screen Committee on connections between like housing justice and environmental justice and how more like Ocean Hill and Brownsville folks can get involved in that fight. Spati, would you want to go next? Sure. Um, so I'm Patti. Uh, I grew up in Brooklyn, in Bushwick, and I've been organizing for a few years now. Um, I used to do more um, immigration rights, legal, know your rights clinics and things like that until a few years ago um, when I, w- I found the Mayday Space <laughs> Social Justice Center here in Bushwick uh, was just opening up and I, I basically inserted myself into the movement work there um, and been doing programming as one of the collective members of the Mayday Space. And during that work, uh, me and a few other Bushwick natives uh, POC Black and Brown folks um, founded Mi Casa No Es Su Casa, which is also known as Mi Casa Resiste, um, which is an anti-capitalist, anti-colonial, anti-fascist collective based in Bushwick, Brooklyn, that uses art and direct action to fight the displacement and criminalization of low-income Black and Brown families. Um, we formed in 2015, uh, winter of 2015, by BIPOC community members, like I said, um, and uh, this uh, one of our first projects was uh, using light displays for families uh, houses to put in front of family homes in Bushwick and storefronts, speaking back to the misconception that Bushwick was already lost to real estate vultures attempting to whitewash the neighborhood. Um, these signs made connections between displacement of indigenous First Nation peoples through the violence of colonization and the displacement of working class black and brown Bushwick families through the violence of gentrification. As gentrification is a process which utilizes a cooperation between the state, the police and capitalist forces um, to attract wealthier and whiter classes to the neighborhoods. Nikasa's projects over the past five years have targeted each of these arms of gentrification. Um, we also do food distro through Comida para el Pueblo, where which we collaborate with um, other grassroots groups in the area in Bushwick with New York Political Resistance and G-Rebels, um, where, we all, where we basically run um, several other political education. Um, uh, we give out a lot of um, resources, legal resources and everything with uh, the groceries and things. So we do that kind of work there. And we also, and recently, um, you know, we were fighting uh, the rezoning until, I guess, last winter, um, right before COVID, um, and they when DCP decided not to come into Bushwick, and so since then we entered into the fight against this pipeline, this fracking pipeline by National Grid. So Mikasa is currently engaged in this fight against environmental racism as part of as part of the Frack Out of BK coalition. So I'm here representing Frack Out of BK coalition, which is uh, basically groups also that are all basic um, based out of Bushwick, Brooklyn mostly, and Bed-Stuy, um, and their groups uh, like Mikasa Resiste, uh, Earth Strike, Indigenous Kinship Collective, the New York Puerto Rico Resistance, University, CN Brooklyn, a few different like grassroots groups that already were working within these communities. Um, um, we all got together basically to create um, more political education within the community because a lot of people just didn't know that it was happening in, in Bushwick and it was almost fully constructed and it was um, and folks didn't know it was happening. And, and it's a fracked gas pipeline. It's super 
dangerous. And so we, 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 you know, as soon as we knew we, we were told because we didn't even know what was happening. And I think it started in 2014, but as soon as we were told that the pipeline was being constructed in Bushwick and it was almost done too, like it was in the last phases of it. Um, uh, we, basically threw, uh, threw down because we wanted to defend the community in that way. So um, so we were trying to fight a national grid's attempt to basically build this pipeline through Brooklyn, North Brooklyn organizing. And we're trying to also organize with our political education, the, the zines that we've created and political education materials. We've been doing flyering in the area um, since about January of 2020. Um, we've been uh, trying to just get the information out there and doing town halls, virtual town halls and teach-ins and, um yeah so we've been doing a lot and uh, this past summer we were finally able to uh organize along with the no north brooklyn pipeline coalition as well um so for i gotta be case a coalition uh that is poc indigenous led and we um got together with uh no north brooklyn pipeline finally in the summer uh to uh basically with the fall actually because um we had our first actions in uh, October against this pipeline. Um, and that's when we got together uh, to fight this, you know, with folks from Brownsville, you know, and Bushwick. So it was really dope. That's a little bit of everything. <laughs> that is quite a quite a bit. I mean, uh, you know, they always say that gentrification is like the multi-headed hydra and you got to like have multiple fronts to wage it. But you don't often hear about environmental racism being such a part of that too sometimes. And I think it needs to be discussed more. Fabian, would you want to go next? Yeah, um, so my name is Fabian Rogers, and I am, um, I consider myself like an everyday person, uh, just a tenant, um, but I've become sort of like a tenant leader um, just through different channels, um, through Hope and Brownsville Residence Green Committee. Um, I came into these spaces originally from pushback efforts against uh, surveillance technology in my building. Um, and from that, just from searching for any sort of organizers or anyone with uh, organizing experience that could help us deal with a nuanced problem in terms of surveillance and buildings, I ended up running into Housing Organized for People Empowerment and Monique along the way. And we've been like comrades among uh, many other folks of hope um, ever since. Um, I came on board when they were originally doing their leadership seminars before they officially um, dropped hope as like the official organization to lead it all. So it's been really fun um, collaborating with them ever since. Um, through that, I've been able to just be in tune with the pulse in terms of what's going on in terms of housing crisis um, related things, um, seeing folks fight for rent abatements and things like that. Um, just different forms of organizing all within East, East New York, Brownsville, Ocean Hill, um, just this part of Brooklyn. Um, and Monique was the person that actually put me, put it on my radar uh, about the No MBK pipeline. Um, and just out of pure curiosity, I usually try my best to be in every, um, I try to my best to be everywhere I can be and be helpful wherever I see myself be fit. I try not to ram myself in anywhere where no one wants me. Um, and so just through the invitation from Monique, um, going to No MBK Pipeline, the first action I, I, I came to, and I feel like this was one of their first actions that really was, I might be wrong when they correct me, if anything, but um, one of their first actions that was really gain, gaining a buzz, not necessarily through media, but through elected officials and just the community and 
and the fact of like a lack of awareness in terms of the pipeline being um, installed and deployed in Brownsville or different parts of it. Um, it was this, uh, it was an event that was happening, I think it's in September where there was a walking event from Zion Triangle, um, which is um, near Pickin Avenue in Brownsville, all the way up to a different section of Brownsville near, um, I forget, is it is it Linden Boulevard? I might have it wrong. I apologize. I forget. Um, it's near the Brownsville Recreational Center, I think it's called. Um, the highway over there. Yeah, the BRC. There's a little section where there's the parking lot with the uh, with the Burger King. That was the original working site where we saw active construction of the pipeline happening, and that was the first event where Monique invited me, and I gained light. I, I gained insight over the fact that okay, there's a pipeline being built like a block away from my aunt that's like about to spew some really harsh chemicals within the uh, neighborhood. Yes, new lots. Thank you, Giovanni. Um, You're welcome. So that's where uh, my sort of activism and all this came from. I'm not going to sit here and act as though I was always aware of environmental uh, justice, but a lot of this all came out of the, the need of like survival. The fact that like, really this, this is all survival led. This isn't out of like passion just for the sake of it. It's because if we don't deal with this now, this will kill us sooner than natural causes and just trying to deal with that and make sure um, that if, if there's no one, if I, I just making sure that I can be there in the cases of where people who don't have the time or money to be in these conversations, there's someone there that's representing them at the very least. Um, so that's why I'm here and I thank y'all for having me. Definitely. Uh, you know, I'd like to ask you, all really a question about uh, the type of actions you all have done. Um, I know Fabian said that the first, you know, your entryway into this fight was that action. Could you talk a little bit about what happened at the action and, and others, if you can talk about, you know, what else has been done by, by both of your coalitions and campaigns to, to really confront this pipeline? Yeah. So, I mean, that original action in September, it was, um, it was one of the direct actions where it was just a march, really a, a march on the sidewalk to go walk along the the Brownsville section of the pipeline, at least a large part of it. Um, and we ended up walking all the way to where the active work site was happening, where the initial start of the pipeline would be. Um, where the fuel, where the oil would pump in and run through Brownsville all the way up to like Greenpoint, New York. So that action was one, an awareness campaign and two, just like a, a pushback effort to vocally show that the community wasn't for it. Um, I think from what I understand, um, Brownsville was one of the last places to really learn about anything going on with the pipeline. And it wasn't from a simple fact of like, we didn't want to know. It was just that we weren't a part of those conversations. Um, there was a lack of awareness in terms of alerting the folks within Brownsville communities um, of what was going on. So when we learned of it, which was in the summer, which was much different than other neighborhoods uh, that's along the pipeline, and it's no offense to them, it's just a part of corporations hiding their agenda and us all learning at different points along the way of like what shenanigans are going on in our neighborhood. Um, through that, 
it was more just like, how do we make ourselves aware and how do we bring awareness more and more? So really, if anything, what uh, No MBK Pipeline, the Brownsville Residents Green Committee, what we've been doing a lot of the time is a lot of awareness campaigns at the very least, whether it's trainings and things like that within Brownsville neighborhoods and um, doing direct actions where we really bring attention to the worker uh, to the workers doing current work on the pipeline and not attacking the workers, but attacking the fact that the corporations are doing these illegal projects within these neighborhoods. And a lot of times our actions are never aimed at bashing the workers. They're just caught up in the system like we are, like we're the end products of the pipeline being pumped in here. They're just a part of the process of just trying to do their work and try to get a dollar, which is completely understood. But the bigger issue here is just aiming at the fact that corporations take advantage of the fact that they're legitimate legislative loopholes that get people to continue on with frat gas projects as of this day, Um, even though there's like a legal mandate to not allow frat gas within neighborhoods, you know, National Grid and the PSC um, found ways to to loophole that sort of system and be able to add extensions to already existing pipelines to then circumvent the current laws in place, which makes it, you know, an issue in its own. Yeah, the, the PSC is, uh, for our listeners, is a public service commission who is making the decision. They're appointed by Governor Cuomo, five people, I believe, um, uh, who are going to sort of review some of the the efforts to construct this, the appeal and proposal by National Grid, um, and they're they're going to be making a decision on this soon. Um, I, just real quick for our listeners, you're listening to Working Class Heroes Radio. I'm here with some of the organizers who are fighting on the front lines to stop the construction of the pipeline through Bushwick. Uh, if or Monique, if you guys want to speak to some of the actions you've participated in or actions that you'd like to see maybe in the future. Yeah, so Frack at a BK um, has focused uh, since the beginning on making noise basically locally but in the Bushwick area about this pipeline. So because a lot of folks just did not know that this was happening, like people were seeing the streets being tore up, but like people are just kind of desensitized to that at this point. And people just thought maybe it was water lines and whatever. So we were just trying to put that information out there as much as we could with um through different things. So we would um, like, we would create uh, messaging about the pipeline. We uh, So we'd have flyering throughout our neighborhoods on a weekly basis, co-creating political education materials to give out to families through the food distros that we organize um, individually with our organizations within this coalition. And, um, also, we've we've talked to just, you know, while we've been doing the flyering, we talked to the residents in here in the area uh, about this pipeline who have only expressed basically surprise and outrage that National Grid would even try to do this in our neighborhood, you know, um, underneath like our homes. And, you know, because this pipeline is going under low income black and brown uh, neighborhoods um, and it's going right past like daycares, you know, local public schools and homes and, and community gardens. And it's going to affect everything because they, they are dangerous. They're, they're known for leaking and, and the leakage actually can cause uh, cancer. It can cause uh, asthma, birth defects, all sorts of horrible things. So people were, are just outraged when we have done the, the outreach because we've been focusing mostly on outreach, but actions um, we've started to do more. Well, um, we have done um, messaging actions. So we've like, we've also had uh, uh, art builds in the um, before, like 
uh, but very socially distanced with some of our volunteers, we've created um, screen prints with messaging against the pipeline that we've put around the neighborhood. We've um, we've created so that kind of action. And we've also done banner drops. And, you know, starting in October, we actually took direct action. And that's when we got together with um, the Northern Brooklyn Pipeline Coalition. So and both our, our, our coalitions got together uh, because we were just seeing that the pipeline in Bushwick is almost paved over, like it's almost completed. So we needed to take drastic measures because people were not paying attention to it. Like the politicians weren't trying to stop it. No one was trying to stop it. No one was even talking about it. And, you know, so, and, and, you know, the community never consented to this pipeline coming through here. So in the first place, like, and they never do, they, this is the kind of thing they do all the time. Like these types of companies, these monopolies, like national grid, you know, um, because at the end of the day, like, uh, environmental racism is always perpetuated in poor black indigenous POC neighborhoods because uh, people in power count on poor people's lack of time and resources so that they are unable to fight this at home. But Brooklyn residents never consented to their own destruction and they never will, which is why we took action in October and we um, we changed ourselves to the pipeline. So I was in one of the first group, I was in the first group that went down and changed myself to the pipeline. Um, and it was just to send the message, like, we're not going to just take this, like, you know, like, we have to, if the politicians and nobody who's act, who has power to stop this won't do it for us, like, and we don't expect them to do it for us, because they never do things for us. So we, we have to do it for ourselves, we need to defend ourselves. And so, um, yeah, so what we did is we took, we, we changed ourselves to the pipeline, and we've been, uh, that way, we've been able to delay the construction, at least ourselves that way. And it's, uh, and there have been, uh, so since uh, our first action in October, there have been several people doing actions. Um, you know, uh, we've continued to take over the different sites uh, within Bushwick and Brownsville. And, you know, uh, people have stopped the showed up at the sites, basically, and you stop the construction. So um, that's basically the kinds of actions, direct actions that we've been taking on lately, along with banner drops, too. And uh, which is great and, and necessary because. You know, we need um, visuals, you know, for folks to understand that this is happening and, and the banner drops are like hugely necessary and, and effective right now. So we've been doing those things lately. It's been really cool to see the the visuals in the media, like after something happens or like these giant banner drops like over highways or on buildings. And it's like, yes, <laughs> that's amazing yeah. um, for sure. Like we just can't really um, understate enough or overstate enough uh, how important the political education process is. Um, there's like the urgency of this pipeline because as you mentioned, Fabian Brownsville was like the last to know, right? So we're fighting this deadline that they're giving us of like, oh, it might be done by Thanksgiving. It might be done by Christmas. And we're like, when, where is the goal line, right? Just trying to get us like hectic, moving around, doing a lot. Um, and at the same time, trying to balance like doing political education with community folks, because like you said, Bati, they, they hear for the first time that there's a pipeline being built and they're so surprised. They're like, what are you talking about? There's where, where, right? And it's like, it's, it's a much slower process to move with people to build that understanding of just like, like what's happening, but also like why it matters to you. Cause I think sometimes environmental justice stuff is like um, seen as like a white wealthy niche issue um, because of who's at, like who's doing the press, who's like heading up different nonprofits, who's like 
taking credit for giant things. And it's like, sometimes people don't see themselves in their own struggle. And it, it it's like a re-education process of being like, this is happening in your neighborhood and this affects you. Um, so through Hope, we, I actually remember doing some door knocking and flyering with you, Fabian, <laughs> in Brownsville around this, right? <laughs> so funny um but we were thinking about it in terms of like you know not only does this cost us like our health but also like in our finances and that really will jack up like utility rates and that can be like a second rent right um people are facing evictions they can't pay or just getting lots of like notices and some evictions more like upseat we're hoping that will not start as much in new york city but you know we're, we're holding um and People have so much on their plate already. And so utilities, utility payments, is just like another layer to it, let alone like, as you mentioned, all of the health effects of it. Um, there are so many things to keep your attention on. And so I think our work is also about, yes, the urgency of this pipeline, but also slowing down to focus on what is the understanding that community folks have of this fight. And how do we make sure that's connected to things that they already focus on? So we're bridging environmental justice and housing justice um, and trying to move at a pace that makes sense with people and to have more of those conversations. Yeah. That's great. I mean, I think it's always so important for a community to see its own members and residents participating in the actions and, and trying to bring attention to this. And I think that's how we're going to you know, through the work that y'all have done, I mean, certainly for me, seeing all that has made me very interested about who's involved, how it's happening, and and where where this is going to go. So I think you guys are doing really good work. Um, I want to take a, a musical break real quick. But before we do, I also want to let folks know uh, who are listening to the show right now that we want to take callers. We're probably going to do maybe one more question, and then we want to take callers. We want to hear from you. So we're going to open our lines up. You can give us a call at 212-209-2877. Again, that line is 212-209-2877. We want to hear from you, New Yorkers. That was Manu Chao's song, Clandestino, featuring Calypso Rosea. You're tuned in to WBAI 99.5 FM, also streaming on WBAI.org. Welcome back to Working Class Heroes Radio. Uh, my name is Julian Guerrero, and I'm here with Monique, Patti, and Fabian, organizers of the two coalitions fighting against the construction of a liquefied natural gas pipeline under the streets of Bushwick. 
Um, it's funny when we were coming up for the title for this episode, one of the suggestions was I got your pipeline right here, but you know, we felt like maybe that was not that uh, professional enough to kind of convey the sentiments through. Um, so I'd like to ask, you know, while we wait for callers again, callers, we want to hear from you. Give us a call right now at 212-209-2877. Uh, we want to hear from you. So I, I want to ask another question in the meantime to our guests. Um, Frack Out of Brooklyn's efforts and the North North Brooklyn uh, pipeline campaign are, are being waged by an impressive coalition of grassroots and nonprofit organizations. Can you guys tell me how these coalitions were built and how long have, uh, you know, some of the some of this organizing been going for, for both the campaign and, and the coalition? I can speak a little to that. Um, I think similar to what Fabian had mentioned a little earlier, like that major action, I think it was September 26th, I remember, um, at Zion Triangle, which is historic in Brownsville. Um, Brownsville has like, you know, an amazing legacy of organizing. We walked from there all the way down to the site of the pipeline. Um, That was like, the first action I think I attended around this and it was amazing to see these different speakers from different organizations, young folks, older folks, but also like politicians um, talking about sort of why it mattered to them, but also like their interest in it um, and just getting to hear from community folks, like why they wanted to fight this. It was there was just like an amazing like crackling energy in the air. There was like free pie. I think they were just giving out pie to people. It was really cool. There was a lot of great organizing going into that. Um, and I think for Hope, we had Hope had like a march through the neighborhood. I want to say in like late August, September. And I actually remember getting connected to. Um, another organ, another tenant organizer who connected me around this pipeline work. And from there, I was talking to Fabian and other folks around it, too. So it actually hasn't been that long, but we've put so much work into it that it's felt like time is like collapsed in a way. <laughs> yeah, that's impressive. Uh, I know we have two callers on the line. I want to hear uh, Bati speak about the frack out of Brooklyn and, you know, how they came to be. Um, and then we'll, we'll we'll go to our first caller, okay? So Frackin' of Brooklyn started in January of 2020, so almost a year ago. Um, and uh, it was because we were um, we were brought in, uh, and we were told that this p- pipeline was coming through, and it was a fracking pipeline. And we already, you know, we had known that fracking is illegal in the state of New York, so it's ridiculous that they're even allowing for this pipeline to come through underneath our homes, underneath these daycares public schools you know it's it's going under my daughter's school like it's like right next to my daughter's uh, public school um so you know and next to these like uh, community gardens i mean it's, it, it can damage everything it's and they're explosive so when we were told about this um you know uh we were going to be joining i mean there were the groups that told us were nonprofits led by white people um and so at that point we were like we kind of figured okay we know what this is about. And we already know that in the environmental uh, justice work, um, a lot of white nonprofits are the ones who lead, right? And uh, we didn't want to, um, we wanted to center 
in black, indigenous, uh, Latinx, brown uh, voices within this work, you know, and the leadership of black and brown voices in this work, um, because uh, we want because we know that those are the the groups that are most impacted by environmental racism in New York City. So we um, so Frack out of BK was just formed together to ensure that it was not going to be drowned, like the voices of black and brown people and indigenous people would not be drowned out in this fight. Um, so uh, that's why we got together and we've been fighting since then. And basically we've been trying to get more and more, just it's a lot of people who live in the area, who live close to this pipeline. And so they've been coming and joining a lot of volunteers have been uh, coming and supporting the different work of the direct action work and also just the promotional work, the, the work that we got to put out there the the outreach work you know so like the art and the zines and the political education materials everything so uh, which has been great you know um and just flyering and doing the town halls and everything so with all these different groups um so we continue to do that we've done that since uh for about a year now and we've only recently started with the action pieces to all of this um but you know i, I just wanted to remind people about this pipeline, right? This pipeline is going through um, North Brooklyn, meaning it's going through, it's already through East New York, Brownsville, Bushwick, um, pieces of Bed-Stuy, I feel like, in the southern part, and it's like, but, um, and Williamsburg, and it, they were trying, and it's right now in the fourth phase through Bushwick uh, and East Williamsburg piece of it, Um but that's almost done. And then right now they were asking for the fifth phase, which was going to go to Greenpoint because this pipeline is only passing through Brooklyn. It's not for Brooklyn residents. It is not there to, and they will lie to you. National Grid lies and says that it's going to go to the community. And that's why it's it's like supplying something that we needed. And it's not, it, it actually, I think National Grid um, at some point held back gas that Brownsville members like a, a two years ago or something when they were first trying to get this the the permits for this pipeline they withheld the gas saying that oh if you don't give us this pathway to get into these pipelines then then we're not going to give gas basically so there were people there was if you look up in, in the news of like two years ago or so uh now um the they were trying to do this they were withholding gas from from these black families in these neighbor in this neighborhood in Brownsville um before they could even start it so that they can build this pipeline so um but this pipeline is not for the community right now it's only passing through and it will but they are going to make us pay for it you know not only with our health but also they want they are going to hike the rate so right now there's people who are fighting that in in court um trying to stop that from happening because we're not going to pay for our own destruction. Right. I mean, and that's what, this is how they do it. They're sneaky as hell. Right. It's like, um, it's not regulated. You know, it's like, it's horrible. You know, I mean, it should be something that should be uh, controlled by the community, but it's not because this is a monopoly. It's a private entity. National grid is not like a part, you know, it's not regulated by the government in any way. Like it's not part of the government. This is a total private entity that has a monopoly on energy in New York city. And this, this is why they're fighting so hard. So, just, and it's and this pipeline is for profit only. It's and why it's passing through Brooklyn is because they want to get it to a refinery in Greenpoint, and that ref, and so that this pipeline, this uh, gas will be used for exportation. So it's it definitely is just for corporate profit, not for us. And they're going to make us pay for it too. So it's horrible. So for that, really appreciate that both both these um, coalitions exist. So I want to actually segue now and hear from some of our callers. Uh, I know we have two, and uh, say your name and, and, and why you're calling. Hello, Diana. Uh, we live in a 
multiracial, poor, I mean, low-income artists building. And uh, you are enlightening us about the fact that they're from London, England. We didn't know that, but we have fought um, National Grid putting smart meters, and then one day they came and they said, we're just looking, and they put the smart meters without us knowing. But are you um, uh, pushing also for diversifying away from um, natural gas and, like, what about the fact that it's toxic and fracking is no good and we need electric stoves, right? We don't need to use gas. Or is there an alternative that's safe? I don't think so. But all these questions arise, you know. And But thank you so much for your knowledge about this corporate um, takeover thing. Like the way Verizon put Fios with our money, like you said, they use your money and they tax you and put surcharges and now they're trying to push 5G, which will kill us, and smart technology. The whole word smart is not smart. You know what I mean? So the deal is right. um, when we fight, again, we fight in little small pockets, and we don't, we don't really know fully who we're fighting. But now you're saying that National Grid is owned by a London-based company. See, that's global capitalism, what I call crapitalism, because the people get crapped on, you know? But I think you're, you're brilliant, you're working from your heart, you're so passionate. It's beautiful what you're doing. And um, everybody got to get involved, everybody got to get involved, you know? Thank artists, you artists have to push, but what is the deal with that? That's my question about um, gas um, stoves and everything. You can't, you, you need to switch to electric, right? Right. That's a good question. Thank you for that. We're going to pass it over to our guests. Fabian, would you like to, I don't know, take up that question, the question about what kind of energy should we be diversifying away from natural gas? Yes. I mean, um, and this is more out of respect to some of the folks from BRGC. Shout out to Gabe, uh, Gabriel Jameson. Um, he is an advocate for um, green energy and he was one of the, uh, front runners and one of the, the, the headliners really um, advocating for proper um, sustainable energies. He was a walking, he's one of many that are walking examples of um, bringing renewable energy to Brownsville by engaging in a solar pioneer project, which I think happened more than five years ago. Um, I might be wrong on the math. I apologize. It did happen within the 2010s, but um, that project was basically a, a way to bring um, solar panels to these places called Nehemiah Homes, which is just a, a community within uh, Brownsville. Um, well known, it's near um, the baseball field along Mother Gaston. Can't miss them. Um, so those homes are like walking examples of what it could look like to bring uh sustainability to black and brown neighborhoods. Um, solar, solar paneling is just one of many different alternatives um, to be able to invest in in order to rethink what it looks like to bring a better future and better uh, just living qualities to black and brown neighborhoods. Because what we have often is for all the new green uh, replacements that come to white in upper echelon neighborhoods, black folks, Black and brown communities get the remnants of all that comes from those past sources. So when we're talking about like MTA and stuff like that, when 
upper Manhattan gets like the green buses. We end up getting the remnants of the new models that are still pumping deadly gases all throughout black and brown neighborhoods. And so what you'll find is all that's really happening is we're not paying attention to our weakest link. So, um, which is like black and brown folk and, and things like that. And so the idea of renewable energy shouldn't come off as something that's hard to do. Uh, literally Nehemiah Holmes is a living example of that that came out of just grassroots organizing and just a little bit of uh, work between assembly uh, assembly folks, council members, and community folks. So it didn't take much funding to really get that project off the ground. So just imagine if we were able to put even larger funds into black and brown neighborhoods and, and entertain the ideas of windmills or, or water energy, whatever the case may be. I'm pretty sure we're at a point now where green energy is much more affordable or can at least equal the affordability of, of gas. So sorry about that. Um, yeah, that's pretty much No, that's fantastic. There's never enough time to talk about these issues and really go in depth into them. I really want to thank Bati, Monique, and Fabian for being on the show. I've learned so much. I hope New Yorkers have learned a lot as well. I want to thank um, our guests again and want to continue to wish them solidarity in their efforts to stop the North Brooklyn pipeline. Um, I also want to thank our team members, Leah, Yanni, Mel, and Lupita for their behind the scenes work this week on the show. And as always, thanks to our great engineer, Gio. Special birthday shout out to Lupita Romero uh, on El Dia de la Virgen de Guadalupe. Today's her birthday. Please, uh, you know, give out your birthday shout outs. Next week is our last show of the year, and it's going to be a good one with more coverage of the fight against ICE detention centers in New Jersey and conditions inside Amazon warehouses during the holiday season. Make sure to tune in on Saturday, December 19th at 6 p.m. Until then, New York, stay safe, stay healthy, and as always, in solidarity. We in big, big trouble, God. Tell me I'll be in line to, and the media love to touch our prize you.